in business, youth can be a huge competitive advantage, be able to work harder, work longer, and have less life getting in the way. However, as many entrepreneurs have faced, or even founders earlier on in their career have all experienced, is the challenge of being the youngest person in the room. When walking into a room, you being possibly a third the age of some people there, trying to guide that six to seven figure deal can be a challenge, but most importantly, can be an obstacle many entrepreneurs have to overcome. Today we speak with Jake, the founder of Trendsetter, an agency that helps brands connect with Gen Z. Over the podcast, we go over some of the challenges that face these larger brands when trying to connect with the youth or the Gen Z group, as well as some of the misconceptions. We really go over how Jake was able to form this business, living out of a small apartment, putting all his effort into this organization to grow it, as well as the decision he had to make to leave school to start this business. We go over how he took this idea with only a few dollars in revenue to being a business he has multiple offices in and has been allowed him to travel and really create the company of his dreams at such a young age. We go over some of his keys to success, what he thinks made him successful, as well as some of the misconceptions or some of the challenges that come with organizations trying to connect with the youth. We go over some of the issues, such as the fact that just being the same age as someone doesn't mean you have the same interests and also doesn't mean you have to market the same way. Hopefully you guys enjoy this episode, learn a bit more about Trendsetter and Jake, as well as how the Gen Z population is reinventing the future we know today. Founder and CEO at Trendsetters, we're the leading Gen Z ad agency, so we help brands understand and reach Gen Z. We have a team of 30 plus, uh, primarily in that uh, demographic base, 18 to 26 year olds. Um, and we work between, you know, venture backed startup companies and fortune thousand brands like McDonald's and Coke, United Healthcare, L'Oreal, um, you know, North Face, PacSun. Um, and, you know, in terms of how we make that happen, um, we do all things content, social media, influencer marketing, and then of course, Gen Z insights. So brands can better understand their consumer base, launch new products towards it. Um, and we just ultimately believe in the idea that the best way to market uh, to a young individual is to have the insights from a young individual that actually allow you to understand the nuances of culture and context and within those conversations that take place online. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's our belief. And we've been able to, over the past four years, you know, grow from zero to 30, um, you know, across the Midwest, LA, uh, Miami is probably a hot spot for us in the near future. Um, and it's been awesome to, to see the growth. And how'd you get into this? Like, did you have a entrepreneurship background where you mowing lawns was it something you always wanted to do? Or did you like many others, I guess, just find yourself saying, Hey, I could start a business right now. Like, how did you go from relatively young, really saying like, I'm going to be a, I don't know if you ever self identify as an entrepreneur, but kind of starting this business when you probably had a lot of other options, uh, to look out for. Yeah, for sure. You know, I would say it's a bit of a, you know, I've had a mentor tell me that mm -hmm. that entrepreneurship is sometimes um, more a genetic disease than than a profession that you choose. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, growing up as a kid, I was always starting businesses left and right. Nothing, yeah. you know, major. Um, and then, of course, to, you know, you're spot on there. Middle school, high school, lawn care was the business, you know, it's really crush. Um, and then I used the cash from that to, to pretty much start up, you know, smaller other entities that... Mm -hmm never really panned out because when you're 16, 17, you don't really know what you're doing business wise. Yeah. Um, you know, and then finally that all accumulated to the point where I had built up a, a following of 100,000 people on Snapchat, funny enough, like pre DJ oh, wow. Poly days. Mm -hmm. And I got pulled into a meeting with uh, a, a really large brand called Noodles and Company with their mm -hmm. corporate marketing team. And in that conversation that was supposed to be about Snapchat, 
it, it quickly diverted into Gen Z. And I realized this has nothing to do with Snapchat. I'm talking to, you know, a group of 50 year olds that their only insight into a younger generation is their kids, which mm -hmm. isn't a, a great insight by any means. You're a little bit biased there, uh, genetically, especially. Yeah. Um, and so I realized the issue and, and that's when it really struck me. And that was my, my first week on campus at, at the University of Kansas, who of course mm -hmm. just won a national championship. Awesome game. Awesome to see that. Um, and, you know, at that point, uh, three weeks later, funny enough, um, you know, after that meeting, I, I kind of thought, okay, there's probably an idea here, but I'm just starting my freshman year. You know, let me just see how things go. And I was on a four year MBA program and I wasn't in a rush to necessarily drop out. You know, and then I kind of had a pivotal transformational moment in my life where I, I shattered my jaw in about nine places. I slipped, hit my chin on a marble counter, shattered my jaw in nine places, had to go through multiple jaw surgeries, had my jaws wired shut, couldn't talk. And it was that moment that it really hit me. Okay, well, I got two and a half months off. I could sit around and do nothing all day and bore myself to death, or I could start a business, you know, from my bed and let's like see what we can do here. And sure enough, about a month and a half later, I go into a client meeting with my jaws wired shut, can't even talk. I'm beginning to fish like this, mainly pointing, and um, you know, pretty much convince someone that hey, for five hundred bucks, uh, you know, we'll do this for them in the Gen Z realm. And from there, the business was off and running. That next semester, I come back and I stack all my classes on Tuesday, Thursday because I'm not ready to leave school just yet. So. In between, I can drive 45 minutes from Lawrence, Kansas, back into my hometown in Kansas City and go to meetings on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Um, those Tuesdays and Thursdays were absolutely brutal, let me just tell you. And then driving at you know 6.30 in the morning to make an 8 a.m. meeting in Kansas City was, was certainly rough, especially while you're in college and still trying to have a social life. So it wasn't a whole lot of sleep. Um, you know, and then at that point, I went full-time with the business that summer, told my parents my intentions, hey, I'm going to hope that this business takes off. And if it does, I'm not going back to school, you know, a couple of tears from mom, dad's like, whatever, it's all good. Um, and from there, within two months, we had a lot of press features and started signing clients, generating revenue. And at that point, I just uh, decided to leave school and go full time with the business. Um, and from there, you know, I've been full time with it ever since. And it has been the most fun four years coming up on four years, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Um, because, you know, certainly it feels like it, it went fast, but let me tell you my perspective of, of four years in entrepreneurship, bootstrapping a business, half of that time during COVID, um, it has felt like fucking 25 years. Uh, it has been brutal. Um, but you know, everything has worked out well. So who am I to complain about it? Right. That that's wild, especially such a relatively fast growth during this time. And also for your experience, kind of going through a pandemic halfway through, which every business, no matter if you have 20 or 30 years of experience, yeah, if you're tech or in person was a dramatic shift from managing employees to managing brands. And I, and I especially, I bet you have some stories around companies probably just going cold on you being like, well, pandemic, well, you don't know what's going on yet. We don't know if we have to lay off half our company yeah. branding marketing. That's something all we're freezing on. So I know it's been, wild time to already have probably halfway through your company's history at this point. Did you have, I guess that's like, that's always a common thing is, you know, you're in school and you have half the crowd saying like, go to school, enjoy it, you know, 
get the experience and then you have the other half being like schools waste of money it's conspiracy like it's the government trying to keep you pigeonholed and individually minded did you and you probably had your parents i I assume most parents are like more school favored just because like anything else you're stacking your odds like it's a education will always help you find a job whether it's beneficial to you or not it's a different conversation but did you over that summer did you have a number you wanted to hit like was there a point where you're like hey i've hit this now i know i'm going full-time or kind of what point did you realize like oh this is serious like i could skip i guess give up on school and really kind of focus on this business was there a number in your mind or was it more of a feeling like how'd you know to make that pretty big life switch really relatively early on in your life yeah it's a great question and and i'll answer that shortly i'm going to preface it with to your point you know I, I i hear that a lot you know parents of course want you to stay in school and I, I have to remind young people that uh, I'm, I'm just a huge believer in, I guess you can call it evolution, but mm-hmm. I'm a believer that, and you know, our company name is Trendsetters. We're always looking at the future. And I can tell you firsthand, our, our past always tells us our future. Yeah. And everything just changes shapes and sizes, but it's the same thing just happening in a different context. And there's so much about our past history, like, um, in terms of how we were, you know, brought up to be humans, which is, you know, we were cavemen and didn't really know how to do anything for far longer than what we know for the past thousand years, you know, um, you know, so with that in mind, your parents have a biological need, like it, like if you think about it with any animal, like, uh, particularly mammals, like the job of a parent is to keep that kid safe. It's not to make you happy. It's not to make sure that you love, you know, your life and your friends and that you're f- fulfilling everything and that you're super rich and successful. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, they, they, that's what they want for you. They want you to be happy. They want you to be successful. But there's a biological, you know, trigger in their brain, mm-hmm. which biology is going to trump any psychological, you know, need they have, mm-hmm. which is telling them to keep you safe. So, yeah. You know, anyone that, that gets mad at parents for doing so, like, let me just tell you firsthand, there's nothing parents can do about it. Like, it is mm-hmm. in their biology. It is in their DNA and genetics to make sure that their offspring stays alive. And going to college is probably the best bet to make sure you stay alive and don't, you know, end up homeless and doing whatever mm-hmm. and moving here and getting killed, right? So, you know, all of that said, in terms of what that one moment was, um, I will tell you it, it was 100% you know, it wasn't necessarily a direct revenue target. Mm -hmm. And I've always been opposed to setting arbitrary revenue goals. You know, I think they're good to have, but I've always said that, um, you know, sometimes those goals can either be limiting or you set arbitrary goals, you chase those goals. And then after you achieve them, you wonder why the hell you did them in the first place. Um, So for me, it was more so what's our minimum threshold to cover our expenses. And what I looked at was, what revenue do I need to get to consistently where I can get an apartment on my own, where I can hire a COO or number two in charge, and I can hire a creative. And whatever revenue that was, you know, at that time, that was anywhere from, I think, like eight to $12,000 total, not having to pay myself anything. Yeah. Um, so maybe close to like 14, 15. So that was kind of the goal, but I attached it to different things than just revenue because it wasn't about me making money. It was making sure this business could sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that if I wanted to grow, you know, my goal was not just to make money for me. I wanted to, to really build this mission out. 
and I can't build this mission out on my own. So if I want to build a big company, which has always been a goal of mine, and I want to have offices, I want to do all these things, then I need to hire people. So I made that the foundational goal. And then at that point, you know, I lived incredibly cheap. Like it wasn't move into, you know, the cool apartment or move to LA, which, you know, now I've been able to do, or, you know, get a house. Um, I literally, uh, the first apartment I moved into, my roommate was a fucking drug dealer. And I was only having to pay him 300 bucks a month in rent because, you know, he was dealing drugs out of the apartment. Like that's what I had to do because that's all I could afford at the time. And, um, you know, it was a couple Costco protein bars that I was living off of for the most part and some ramen and shit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just kind of make it work, but that was, that was kind of the goal for me just to get to a level where the business could sustain itself. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of times, like you said, having arbitrary number, first one is to figure out that number can take half the time to reach your darn goals, especially when you're like, okay, do I need 50 K or 57 K? Well, if it's 50, well, I could go six and it's never ending because the number is never big enough or small enough. And like you said, smart to have, you look at costing work very backwards, same as height price product possibly is like looking at what's the bare minimum and let's just work up from there. So when you start, you know, you start this business, it's over the summer. How do you, I never, in a lot of founders I speak to, like finding people to work with, team members, employees is like one of the biggest challenges that I thought it was always a joke. Like your employees are your most viable asset. So I started working. I'm like, oh, goodness gracious. Like employees can make or break a company based on culture, based on everything else. Oh, so yeah. you being obviously relative, like how did you find your first employees in, in that CEO and like other people? Was it just through family and friend networks? Did you try reaching out kind of brand? Like, like you said, yeah. you had a pretty big following at the time through different mediums. How'd you find employees and how'd you know if they were like a good culture or like a good fit to the team? Yeah. So for all business answers, I'm a believer that there are tactical solutions and that there are strategic solutions. Mm-hmm. And very often it is that strategic solutions are big enough to the point where you don't need a tactical one. So on the tactical side, yeah, I mean, I had a strong following on LinkedIn. I promoted everything we were doing and would share my day-to-day through my Instagram stories and other story features. I would share my insights on all my social media. I didn't have a huge following, but I had enough of a community there. I'd meet people, whatever. And so I, you know, I was always getting interest to, to work for and with us both, by the way, on the client side, which the majority of all business we've generated has been inbound. That's still the case today, even with these really large brands. Um, but, you know, so there's tactical things, mm-hmm. but to me, the, the real solution to it all was more strategic, which was the vision, which is mm-hmm. me always, you know, going out and selling the vision of the company. I'm always talking about it. I'm always sharing that information out there in the world. Um, and vision's one of those things that you can spend all day writing it down on paper and putting it in decks and talking, mm-hmm. you know, in a boardroom about it. But to me, you know, um, the, the, the best analogy really is like when you get, you know, a couple drinks in you and you're talking with your buddies, like, mm-hmm. what do you want to talk about? And if you're really a visionary founder, you will not shut the hell up about yeah. your crazy vision for the world. Like that's just, that's the reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I lost a lot of friends maybe because of that. My best friends today, you know, probably hated me for it. Um, now I'm a little bit more of a real person yeah. sometimes. Uh, but no, it's exactly that. Like th- to me, vision trumps it all because potential employees and even potential clients, 
you know, think about potential clients. You're taking a gamble on some 18 year old kid and you're about to pay, you know, him and his little team, like tiny team, uh, you know, potentially five to $10,000 on a monthly basis um, to do something that they're pretty much marketing your business, right? And like, they're in charge of your brand. They're doing a lot of different things for you. Like, why are you going to trust that? It's not like we had so many case studies or anything of that nature to prove it or a decade of experience or, you know, I graduated from marketing school to prove it. To me, like vision is one of those things that you just feel and same with confidence. Like, so it's vision and confidence. And that's, what's been the ultimate attractor is that when I meet with people, whether they're client, potential employee, they can feel it, uh, regardless of what I'm saying, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's this sense that you get. And if you solve for that, the tactical things, they fall into order. I think that's actually probably one of the greatest things, really great advice, especially for early stage companies. I always found when I was helping hire, you know, when I was helping companies hire or working for small startups, if you hire based on purely (laughs) skills, especially when your team's under like 50 or under 10, let alone five, things are going to change every day. Like if you're like, Hey, we need you great at Excel. You're probably also going to have to do some marketing or have to do other things. And what's going to keep you at the company or keep you motivated is that, like you said, that vision being able, like you're part of something bigger, part of the goal. And you, I've talked to so many people leaving like half a million dollar salaries to be like, you know, I just don't enjoy, I feel like my work has no meaning. And I have people making like 40 K with masters being like, I love my job. Like, cause I'm the vision and I'm passionate and that passion until you feel it, you think it's not fake, but you never believe how important it is until you meet people who are passionate and, or feel that passion in your work. And you're like, this is that in like, love what you do. And you'll never work a day in your life, which always sounded fake until you enjoy your job. And you're like, Oh damn. Like I'm actually excited to wake up. Like Monday's my favorite day of the week. Yeah. Um, type thing. Yeah, so- that's exactly it. You know, it's like, uh, someone will always, when it comes to like money, salary benefits, like you, you're never going to win. Like Google at, at any moment, Google or Apple or, you know, some big corporate, you know, Deloitte can come in and offer you an obscene amount of money. Like, so at the end of the day, the only way you're going to win is, is, is by exactly that. It's being able to sell that vision. And you touched on this and it's always one challenge that always comes up is, you being relatively young, going to these older, I wouldn't say dinosaurs, because them are pretty hip, but like bigger organizations where the average age in the room might be in their 50s. Yeah. How did you navigate that space? Because but obviously you're working, you know, your your business does work with obviously younger demographics as well. But how do you walk into a room and say like, hey, I'm probably younger than your kids and maybe the same age as some of your grandkids, but yeah. you should give me your money. Like, how'd you get over that hump? Was there a lot of imposter syndrome? Do you feel like, why are they listening to me or how'd you kind of get past that wave to really be confident in a room of people who may be like four X your age? Maybe that's a little bit too dramatic, but like three X your age. Yeah. I mean, the number one thing that that's helped me in that space is for one, I'm a believer that you should only do what you can be the best in the world at because Mm -hmm. anything else you always be beaten in. And if, if you're in a, a fierce competitor like me, it'll just drive you crazy. Um, so when you know your lane and when you know what you're the best in the world at, you can say definitively, Hey, this is why we need to do it. And this is why you need to work with us. And this is why it's going to cost this obscene amount of money, which has always seemed, you know, pitching a $500,000 contract. Like that's crazy. That's still crazy to me. I've never seen that amount of money in my life. Like, Mm 
you know, just sitting there, you know, on a table or in, you know, a bank account, but yeah, you know, that's what we pitch on the regular now. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's things of that nature that, that really help, um, you know, is when you, when you really know what you're the best at and you know, your strengths, weaknesses and limitations, mm -hmm. you can go all in on your strengths. And, you know, that, that's the way I look at the youth side of things. Um, the reality is there are there are inherent advantages and weaknesses of being young. And if I were to, I could spend all my time trying to address the weaknesses. Oh, experience, check out these case studies, check out these references, you know, all these other things when it, when it comes to that. Um, but I'm not going to win that battle. So why even try to fight? Like, I'm just going to ignore it. Instead, I'm going to go all in on my strengths. So I'm going to show up wearing, you know, this is like maybe something I'd wear to, to a meeting. It's like mm -hmm. a hoodie, a little hooded, like long sleeve mm -hmm. shirt. Right. And I'm wearing like some Nikes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like this is legit attire. I would wear to a corporate meeting because I'm going to be young. I'm going to be youthful. I'm going to be exactly who I am. I'm going to talk in the same language I'm using right mm -hmm. now. I'm going to use Gen Z vernacular. I'm probably going to curse at some point, mm -hmm. especially if I'm going on a tangent, um, because I'm a believer that I would much rather you know, I want to walk out of that room and um, I want them to, to, to know that they were able to see the authentic version of me and not just a sugar-coated professional one. And mm -hmm. honestly, part of the reason we've stood out at that Fortune 1000 level is, is exactly that. Um, it's because we're not afraid to lose the job. We're not, we don't have to be uber professional because that's not what we're about. Mm -hmm. And we can be Gen Z because that's what they're paying us to be. They're paying us to be Gen Z. If they wanted us to be corporate, they would go with someone else. And, you know, I will say we have definitely lost a lot of business along the way because we weren't crazy professional, mm -hmm. but would they have actually ever signed any contract agreement or would that have been a long-term client? You know, if, if you're not going to buy from us because you don't think we're professional or because mm -hmm. we're too young, do we even want to work to, with you in the first place? You know, that's always my question. Yes. Yeah. Anyone that makes decisions like that is is not someone I want to, want to work with professionally. And I think that's the biggest thing a lot of startups, a lot of individuals have a challenge doing is not only like, I think we start out, you want as many clients as possible, but then you get to a point for a lot of people earlier than you would think where you have to turn down business because the headache is too much. Or like you said, you do all this work and they were like, you know what? We want to change everything or, hey, yeah, we love your idea. We love what you're doing, but can we do it like this instead? And you're like, well, you're hiring us to to work yeah. on this project to do this and you want us like why hire us if you're just going to change and i think you really hit the nail on the head there in a the sense that if the you have to understand who you choose as a client but it kind of goes into the next question is how do you find like a good like a business client relationship like what is it some of the i guess red flags are like hey this is going to be an issue going forward and what are some of the good signs when like in that first meeting where you're like hey this should or will be a good partnership for many months if not years in the future yeah, so I like I like setting a clear vision and objectives that everyone can imagine in terms of what we're achieving, mm -hmm. and more so on the on on the vision side of like, okay, yeah, it makes all all the sense. Here's the data on the paper. Here's the KPIs. Here's the objectives. Mm -hmm. But why are we doing this at the end of the day? Like, what do we want as a result of this? How are we going to feel emotionally? Mm -hmm. um, and I like to put myself in the shoes of you know the individuals were we're doing so. If you're a marketing manager at a corporate company. If sales increase by 4% or 2%, does that make a difference in your life at all? No, mm -hmm. not at all. So how can we make sure, and, and this is where I think that the business world is shifting a bit, 
you know, I think it's always been this way, but I think people are, are waking up to it a bit where it's like, look, everyone's going to serve their own self-interest mm -hmm. and everyone's going to do what's best for them. How can you attach that to the bigger grander vision of a business and of a com company and of a corporate entity? And, you know, I think the way you do that is by attaching it to the vision of, okay, no, 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 we're going to do this thing. And it's going to be really cool and people are going to love it. And it's going to be awesome. And you're going to be able to talk about it, you know, to your, to your family, to your kids. Like, this is going to look really awesome in your portfolio. Like, those are some of the things people want. People don't want to see the, the graph just go up necessarily. Those are, there are boxes you have to check no matter what that everyone's yeah. going to check. Like, it has to go this way and it, you have to achieve this and you have to do this statement of work and you have to get these certain things done. But what are we really doing here? You know, uh, after we check the boxes, how do we feel about it? And are we proud to, to talk about it? Those are more of the things I look at. And so in terms of red flags, um, I would say, you know, when, when, when clients look at things in a very binary perspective, especially in marketing, but in any yeah. world, when they look at things in a binary perspective and when they focus more on the, uh, the specific execution and work as opposed to the results, which happens quite a bit, you would be amazed to, to realize like, why are you micromanaging what is happening and the hours going into it instead of just the result? Um, and so, you know, what I look for in a, in a potential client is one that's, they have, they're, they're, they have goals and objectives in mind. Those goals and objectives mean more than just them keeping their job or their business staying alive. Um, they mean something a little bit more exciting and emotional. So those are some of the things I look for, but the red flags are definitely whenever it's, you know, it's more so just like doing things like, yeah. Like, are we really on this planet to just sit around and just check boxes all day? That is a challenge. I think it's always difficult working with, especially larger clients or larger businesses that like you find out. And that's why bureaucracy kills a lot of innovation is that some oh, yeah. people's jobs are just to t check boxes and you're, and you're th start thinking, well, what are your results? Like, why are you even spending time doing this? It's crazy how much time is wasted. And I think, funny enough, work from home proved that. Like, at the end of the day, if I get the job done, why does it matter if I'm working from nine to five? If I'm working from six to three, then going surfing, if I get the same amount of work done, and I guess working relatively the same amount of hours to get the same results, why does it matter? I think people's eyes are opening. And also, at the end of the day, from work from home side of things, if you're not paying for an office, you're saving thousands of dollars. So you're just happy as a company, even if it's like a negative corporate greed side, like, hey, if I don't have to pay for an office space for you and I'm saving money from my bank account, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, I think COVID really helped that. One thing you brought up that's super interesting, because this is something I, I wouldn't say it's a challenge, but it's always something I always go back and forth on, or it's always an interesting point of conversation is you said like, obviously in these meetings, you want to be your genuine self. Like, because they're buying into you, your mission, your vision, but also your business. But there's also this, like, level of, like, professionalism. Sometimes it's over the top, but sometimes you do have to be, I guess, there is a certain level. How do you figure out or how have you been able to navigate, like, at what level is, like, considered unprofessional? Where, like, hey, this is too unprofessional versus being, like, hey, this is the way we actually speak and do work here. Like, how do you find that line between being too casual versus being, I guess you'd say, like, over cookie cutter over prescriptive in the way you speak. I mean, you speak very well. I'm just wondering how you navigate that space. I know when I was young, I was like, people should just understand how I speak. And I'm like, okay, there there's levels to this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, 
you know, you got to be a chameleon. You got to be, you got to be able to shift to your environment. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what I always recommend for people. And you got to be a great communicator and great communicators. It's not that they just communicate well, it's that they communicate well to everyone so that that individual can understand because everyone, regardless, I mean, geography, even the United mm-hmm. States, like people talk different based on where they're born, even in this small country that only makes up a small minute percentage of the world population. Like that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, to think about. And then you add into that generational, you know, aspects mm-hmm. and then, you know, different neighborhoods and different things of that nature, like who you grow up with determines like mm-hmm. the language and the slang you use. And, you know, I think online culture is changing out a bit where it's becoming a little bit more mainstream for everyone, but, you know, it's still the case. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's the ability to shift your communication to your environments and being mm-hmm. willing to do that. And it, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like being bilingual. Like I would imagine for people that are, you know, I know a bit, but not, not at that level. Um, mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't it be so much more difficult to, to be having to translate, you know, you hear something in Spanish, you translate to English in your head, then you have to figure out what you're going to say in English and then translate it again to Spanish, like all within that time yeah. zone, you know? So it's almost like when you're in a room, that's kind of what, what you need to do is figure out what are those translation mediums where you can communicate with people appropriately. Um, and then just adjusting your behavior and other things. But I don't know how much of that's actually taught as opposed to kind of just a, a natural social habit. Like you got to be able to talk to people. Uh, I, I think that's one thing, like you said, that chameleon, uh, being a chameleon for good communicators, I think that's one thing that you don't realize how important it is until you start watching people with different friend groups or like different corporate settings. And you're like, you never speak that in front of me. Like, why are you lying to them? You're like, I'm not lying. Like you said, like I'm literally speaking like it's a different language. So they understand. Yeah. And I, like we talk, like we always talk about like the mission and vision. Like if you're using words that may mean the same thing to you, to them, they might not be connecting to the vision. I mean, analogies are always classic to say, you know, like using similar events so they can reconnect to but i think you're right is that it is like speaking a different language where someone could still understand what you're saying but that passion in the words would be dramatically different it might not translate as well Mm -hmm. that's exactly it one thing i mean comedy always making fun of the gen z's and different age groups like the boomers and that became a huge thing a while ago and that's like a big topic conversation but obviously gen z now getting to the you know the age group of like the key purchasing that 18 to 35, like key market where they have all the money, they have all disposable income. And now businesses are starting to realize like, Oh, we have to start changing our messaging. Is there some common misconceptions within the Gen Z culture that you, when you go into a meeting, people say like, Oh, aren't Gen Z's all about X, Y, and Z. And you're like, that's completely off. Are there, are there these key, like wrong, wrong interpretations of the population and what would they be even though i'm not that much older than you i'd say i still like you said like few years makes a huge difference in like what you consume what you watch like i'm on youtube and linkedin where i'm like young enough to not be on facebook anymore but old enough to miss out on the tiktok phase yeah so number one thing that stands out is the idea that gen z is a one-track mind Mm -hmm. um part of the flaw here is I don't know when this started becoming okay to do, but publications that use the phrase millennials this or Gen Z this, um, particularly like a BuzzFeed or a Business Insider, yeah. or I mean, even the, the New York Times is the same thing. Um, 
and I know all those PR companies because always reach out for insights and stuff and I'm never giving them to them because they're going to skew it in whatever way they, yeah. they want to. But, you know, that that's the biggest issue is thinking that an entire generation is a one track mind. Um, you know, as much as it's, it's funny, we're focused on Gen Z because of the nuance and that's what our agency mm -hmm. believes. But you will never see me. Uh, you know, I'm not a believer, though, that generational uh, similarities are anything more than a marketing, like mm -hmm. a made up marketing thing that we did. Um, there's a really fascinating report I'll, I'll send you after just because mm -hmm. it's cool to look at that shows the correlation between certain habits uh, versus, of course, generational marketing. So the variance between the Gen Z generation was a score of two um, on, on a scale of zero to, to 100. So then you look at some others. Um, they take those in the... Um, take those uh, that, oh, do you brush your teeth every day? Then you're closer to a seven or an eight. So people that brush their teeth every single day are more likely to have a lot of their life habits mm -hmm. and purchasing decisions in common than those in the same generational cohort. And it goes on and on for all these weird little quirky habits and stuff that are very commonplace and that like most people do. And it just goes to highlight the fact that like generational uh, th this idea that a whole generation thinks in one particular way is completely flawed. Um, now there are nuanced things of this digital generation, of course. Um, and that's where, where the money's really made, but that's the biggest thing that stands out. This idea that Gen Z is a one track mind. Um, and the other, I would say is that this is, um, this is a, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's treated a lot because of their youth that this generation is just kids and that they think like kids. And, you know, I, I hope to God I'm, I'm not the same when I get older and anyone younger than me appears to be a kid because maybe I have my own kids at that point. So there's like that correlation, but there's a lot of that that takes place um, where they're like, especially in the marketing world, there's way too much emphasis, like spelling things out to people or like over explaining or like, you know, doing marketing things that are just so, um, so childish, you know, um, and that's why I think, you know, that, that really popular show euphoria that went berserk with Gen Z first and then scaled out and became really mass market this year. Like that's why it was so popular. They were, you know, there was a show that had in a high school, there were like drug problems and mental health mm -hmm. problems and like all this stuff. Like that's what happens in high schools across America today. And, you know, whereas what has, what has a high school vibe looked like for the past 30 years in production, it has been like the most cheesy thing mm -hmm. ever. It's like, it, like, it's just kind of crazy to think about. So those are the two probably biggest things that, that stand out to me that. I, I find it so interesting that you touch on with that, that study is that you, you grew people in like massive age range, like oh, yeah. 18 to 26. And they're like, this is the generation for this. Yet when you get into marketing, people will be like, you get so minute. You're like, our target customer lives in this geogra you know, geography. They do this type of thing. This is how we're going to price them. This is the color. Like how complex big data has gone with like specific, like targeted marketing. Like age is almost not a factor anymore. It's like all behavioral. And that, like you said, like brushing your teeth, even though that sounds, you're like, well, that's silly, but like that's a behavioral aspect. And you can probably say like pretty healthy. Like there's like all these other factors where age probably has, like you said, some correlation. Obviously, like you've probably watched the same things on TV. You've lived through the same event. But besides that, 
especially across as small as North America is, even me being in Canada versus the States, like so much difference in just where you grew up that like age is almost no longer a factor for some of your bigger, some of the bigger challenges. Yep. That's exactly it. That's what's that's super interesting. How you touched on how like, people will always treat the younger generation like kids and be like, Oh, you don't know what's going on. Like back in my day. Yeah. And I think that that is one challenge. I think that's always going to happen, but I think it co- goes back to the factor and kind of talking about human psychology a bit is everyone always thinks they were smarter when they were younger. Like yeah. they're always like, cause you can never go back and be like, what did I know back then? Cause you, it's impossible. You just use your brain. You have today. And I think that's one of the issues that always occurs is like, Oh, back, you know, if I'm 70, I'm like back when I was 20, I knew how my life was going. I could afford a house on my, you know, I had my mail route and I bought a five bedroom house because that's, how I just worked hard. You always overemphasize how successful you are in the past. And I think that's always a challenge, but I, this is good. This is quite, I'm kind of interested in hearing your perspective on this is like, because you've had relatively, you know, you had your own business, you have success. You're almost like psychologically, or like, I mean, like what your day to day is, is probably not common compared to your age group. So oh, yeah. how do you s- stick with trends and kind of follow what's happening? Because obviously they're within your generation, but like you said, your life experiences are probably much more similar to maybe some people you're meeting in the room than maybe some of your other friends who are graduating university now, maybe having are fun employed, working at a bar or like starting their careers now where you have a career in business. How do you kind of stay on top of, I don't want to say trends, but like stay on top of kind of what's popular. Like, is there a process for kind of navigating this dynamic world? Cause like every day there's something new happening. Yeah, it's funny. That's what, you know, it used to not be difficult for me at all. Like I didn't have to think about like staying on top of trends. It was just something I did. But then I found myself like two years in the business and I'm like, all right, I'm working like 10, 12 hours a day and I'm worried about my bills and my savings account. And I'm going to bed at 10 PM and I haven't been out, you know, in three weeks. Um, and I don't know the last time I talked to anyone outside of my team and a couple friends, like, all right, yeah, I should probably get tapped into what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have the life of a 50 year old single man. You know, I, I've, I've done a bit more with my social life since, um, we get more tapped in, which has been super helpful. But one of the things that, that, that I'm fortunate enough to have is I have an insights team that is tracking all the latest news trends happening on social media. Um, trends happening in the world of Gen Z, all the latest published Gen Z insights reports, uh, our own Gen Z community that we talk to on a consistent basis just to see what's going on. So I'm always keeping the pulse on on what's going on. But um, and then the other thing too is I have two younger brothers, and so those are my personal case studies. Yeah, I'm always tapped into. I'm asking my youngest brother, who's like 14. You know, when Fortnite was big, I was like, Hey, how many hours a week are you logging? And what, what do your friends play? Oh, CSGO. Okay. Interesting. All right. And what, you know, why did you decide that? So, you know, it's, um, it's always staying tapped into it to make sure you can stay on top of, of all the latest movements. Um, but that said, no, it, it has been difficult. You know, I, I just turned 23 about a week ago and, uh, I feel old. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> that's so, I think that's one thing that people don't realize is that like, even the most tr- trendiest people is that like until when you stop when you start thinking you know everything is when you start falling behind oh, yeah. and I, I think you can see some like marketing or business people who are quite a bit older and like how they're still relevant is because they they stayed humble they're like hey look like i don't know what's happening i don't know these 
with these new trends, these new techs, but then they have people around them who are like, hey, this is, I mean, Gary Vee is the great example. You think like that mindset, that type of person has a great team around to keep up to date. He's by far a trendsetter for a demographic. You'd say like, ah, they're not into technology. They're too old, but it's like, he's been able to reinvent himself multiple times. Yeah, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Now that you've had some success, is there kind of jumping more just like to entrepreneurship in general? What did you find, I guess you say easier being an entrepreneur than you thought before? Like, like, Hey, to be an entrepreneur, I need to do this or like starting a business. This can be very hard, but wasn't that hard. And what was a lot, and then the other side of it, what was a lot harder and you thought might have been super easy to do? Yeah, so I, um, you know, on the easier front, um, I would say it's been, it's been easier to, um, it's been easier to make uh, significant strides over a longer term window mm. um, as opposed to a shorter term window where it's been a lot harder to make significant strides. And that's one of the things I've been able to learn. I was always convinced, oh, we're going to be at here like next month. And I've learned how to better, better plan timeline wise. Um, but, you know, in terms of, I guess, I'm trying to think so I answer this question best. Um, I mean, some of the concerns I hear like work-life balance, I think that's been easy to do. Um, I think it's been easy to stay and like keep my physical health top of mind and prioritize that with the stress of business. I think it's been easy to manage the stress from the business. Um, I think all people got to figure out what is that offset switch that you can turn off and get the brain to shut it off. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that has maybe been more difficult, um, is God, I'm trying to think of, I would say probably what's been the most difficult or challenging part of the business is making sure that long-term you're making the right decision um, and making sure that you're not missing out almost like opportunity costs. Like yeah. is my decision to go all in here preventing this, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm going full-time with my business here, but should I leave to go be the number four at my buddy's company who could go become the next Facebook? Like, yeah, those are the, those are the really hard ones when it's, Hey, am I maximizing the most of my time, energy and efforts right now? Because you truly never know, but that's, that's, what's guided me along the journey mm -hmm. is, uh, I don't, I don't think this is true, but I've convinced myself that this is true. If that makes sense. I've convinced myself that there's no right decision. Whatever decision you make, that's the right decision. And no yeah. looking back, that was period the right decision. Even if you look back and, oh, if I would have done this, that company IPO'd, I would have been a fucking billionaire. No, you wouldn't have. You would have been hit by a bus in three weeks. Yeah. Like, because you would have been doing this and yeah. jump on a flight and you walk across the street, boom. Yeah. Like, you if you convince yourself that whatever decision you make is the right decision, then you won't ever look back and you'll always have a lot more confidence going into it. And that way you don't get into that position where a lot of people do, where they make a decision and then they immediately regret they made that decision. And then when that decision doesn't work out, they blame the decision, not their effort. I'm a believer that whatever decision you make, you can make that decision work. Like there's no, no there's no such thing as a flawed strategy. You know, maybe our, our legion strategy is me going to go, I'm going to go bang on doors all over the city until yeah. someone can afford our business. Is that the most optimal strategy? No, 
in theory, if I put enough effort into it, it would probably work. And I think that's the case with anything. Yeah. I, I think what you touched on is probably some of the, firstly, what you said, said at the beginning was something I always advocated and that people thought I was crazy for saying that. And you said, like, find that off switch. I said the biggest skill of life is figuring out how to relax harder. Like, how to relax as aggressively as possible. I think that's one of the things people forget is that everyone wants to work harder harder and like how can be the most efficient but no one ever thinks of being the efficiency of rest or efficiency of taking time off and one thing that silly is enough that helped me was realizing like an hour is an hour so i used to watch tv because everyone watches tv but video games they're toxic like video games that's unproductive and then all i did instead of watching two hours of tv i watched i played video games for one hour i felt way better and my whole output was way more productive because i only was off for one hour and then I realized, like, hey, if you can relax or you said disconnect as quick as possible, and like an old person, going for walks is the greatest thing you can do half the time. It sounds so yeah. boring, but every time you go for a walk, you're like, that was great. I'm relaxed. Yeah. And that old people know what they're talking going about. Going for a walk, you know? Yeah. But um, I, I think what you said with, like, making the right decision, that's the correct decision. I mean, I think everyone's been through that. Like, I've worked for many startups who've IPO'd. And I'm like, damn, if I was there, like they sold for a few hundred million and I was employee number 10, I could, I could have made a million bucks. And you always drive yourself crazy because I left that company because I didn't like it. Like there's always a reason you do something. But I think the key, what you touched on was your effort. That your, the decision was never bad or the strategy was never bad. It was probably, you know, you can look at it, your effort or, you know, the decision on how you execute it. Because I think that's the big difference. I think a lot of people might take that advice and run too far being like, oh, it's never up to me. It was, you know, just unlucky, unlucky. But you completely said the opposite. It's not about luck. It's about effort and kind of basing it down on effort because you can, you never know what's going to happen. You're like, you could always, something could always be better, but something could always be worse. And it's always hard as a human. You never look at like, well, if I took that job, that company failed and I, I'm way better where I am now because that's not happy thinking it's only ever exciting to talk about oh i could be a trillionaire now if i just went all in on dogecoin like two years ago i would have been like oh this is so easy but you'll never do that five years ago or a few years ago because you'd lose all your money probably because you'd be an addictive gambler in the crypto markets um if yeah. you're that aggressive in it and to bring it full circle for you mm -hmm. you know was it the best decision for me to drop out Everyone that you talk to in my network right now would say, yes, that's a special case. Yes, that was the right decision for him. Well, they're saying that because it worked out. But why yeah. did it work out? It didn't work out because I had some brilliant fucking idea or I was some genius kid or I had context. I mean, I started the company with 500 bucks, no network. I refused to use my parents or any family network. I said, hey, pretty much just disown me because I don't want help. Like, yeah. I'm going to do this my way. My back was against the wall. It worked out because I believed it was the right decision. And because I believed it was the right decision, I went all in on it, put all of my energy and effort. And when, when my back against the wall was against the wall, I started started digging up and, mm -hmm. you know, continuing to climb and get to where I need to go. And it's funny, I'm calling you from our, our new offices at Bernstein Reen. And I actually came here in June of 2018, met with their managing director. This is a very famous ad agency. They made yeah. a happy meal, you know, huge. And now we're actually officing with them uh, four years later. You know, I was thinking about dropping out of school then, you know, in that meeting, they probably advised me not to. Of course, I still did because I thought it was the right decision. So, yeah. Anyway, to bring it full circle, I uh, thought that was an interesting little mm -hmm. note.
I, I think what you touched on is correct. I think it's everyone has their own journey, but it's really the effort you put into it because it's hard. I think, I mean, you've seen this in marketing. Like, you can't base an individual person off a statistic. Like, on average, life's pretty easy to figure out. Like, if you can go to Harvard and get an MBA, you, on average, probably make a quarter of a million dollars, which is way more than everyone else, like, on average. But then you're one person. So you could be that one person who goes there, hates it, and, like, does nothing with their life. So I think, like you said, it's people always try to connect you to a statistic or like, hey, you're an exception to the rule. Or, hey, no, no, no. Like, if you did this, there's an 18% chance of increase. But for one person, your you're, sample size is one. It's only what you make out of it. I mean, your life, like, and no matter what you do, there's always examples of people being successful or not successful. So it's hard to ever base it off of anything. And I think going full circle again, like to your said, your parents most of the time are like, they look at you as a statistic. They're like, yeah. if you go to school or you do this, you're more likely to be successful. And probably if you had a thousand kids, which would be physically impossible, that'd probably work out well for averages. But for one person, it's all, it's only ever up to you, but <laughs> it's a wild story of life. But yeah, I mean, before we hop off here, like, I guess how people want to follow along in your journey, like what's the best place to follow you, follow this story, follow Trendsetter and kind of the work you're doing, especially over these next uh, few months and years. Yeah, I would say LinkedIn. Uh, I respond to most messages on there, by the way, um, unless it's those sales spam messages, uh, which LinkedIn still has not figured out how to stop, yeah. uh, mainly because it's owned by Microsoft, but that's a conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn, uh, and then all my other social handles is Jake Bjorset, J-A-K-E, and then B-J-O-R-S-E-T-H, very Norwegian, Bjorset. Um, that said, I grew up next to a farm. I'm by no means European. I wish I was. That'd be cool. Uh, nothing special about me. Uh, but anyway, no, Brendan, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And if I can help anyone out there, you know, on your journey, feel free to reach out.